High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Last week, we talked about Jane Russell, who became a pinup star thanks to publicity photos for The Outlaw, which were released to magazines and embraced by a generation of G.I.s long before anyone ever saw Jane Russell in a movie. Today's story is sort of a spiritual sequel to that episode. It's the story of how a single publicity photograph turned the former Joe Raquel Tejada, a 26-year-old single mom and former weather girl, into the star of the most popular bedroom poster, for the next generation of adolescent American males. Even more than the images of Jane Russell that circulated in the 1940s, the poster featuring Raquel Welch in the doe-skin bikini costume from the 1966 movie One Million Years B.C. transcended the movie it ostensibly advertised. And it was an image which changed Raquel Welch's life, turning her into the sex goddess of the moment a moment in which the culture was fracturing, as the generation which had embraced sex goddesses like Russell and Marilyn Monroe watched the kids of the 60s, with their completely different values, 
start to take over. Raquel was a new spin on an archetype that had started to go stale. But there was no going back. There was nothing to go back to. Just a year earlier, she had been an anonymous fit model who was lucky to get an uncredited walk-on in an Elvis movie. But where those early PR images birthed a relatively varied career for Jane Russell, Raquel Welch felt like a prisoner of her first flush of fame. She had appeared on more than 75 European magazine covers before her first movie was released, and she struggled for another decade or so to transcend the persona popularized by that fur bikini. Welch would later describe the version of herself that was suddenly catapulted to stardom as a physical presence without a voice. This is the story of how she tried over the next 20 years to attach her own voice to that physical presence, a voice which could be unfashionable, opinionated, and unforgiving. It's the story of how, after over a decade of being dehumanized by a film industry which saw her only as a body, and rejected by a women's movement that saw her as a tool of the patriarchy, she finally got so fed up that she sued a studio. This is the story of Raquel Welch, from pinup to pariah. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Born Joe Raquel, but always called either Raquel or Rocky, she grew up in San Diego, which she'd call the golden state of boredom. Her father was a Bolivia-born aeronautical engineer, prone to abusive behavior. Her mother was a stay-at-home mom who regretted having married the wrong man, but couldn't bring herself to leave. Little Rocky loved TV comics like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, but she was obsessed with ballet. After studying throughout adolescence, Raquel's ballet teacher told her that she didn't think she had a future, and maybe she should try being a comedian instead of a dancer. She was bummed, but she took the advice and started doing local theater. At this point, Raquel had no sense of herself as a great beauty. She'd get catcalled on the street, but she assumed that was just because men are pervs. She didn't feel beautiful because she didn't look like the mid-50s, blonde, blue-eyed ideal. Raquel Welch's adolescence overlapped with the rise of Marilyn Monroe as the ultimate male fantasy. So soft and voluptuous that her body felt like the embodiment of post-war plenty 
and yet so blonde and pale that in a bed she'd threaten to disappear amidst white sheets. The Marilyn fantasy was old-fashioned fairy tale stuff in packaging that matched its time. It was an idea of a woman who constantly needed rescuing and protecting, and who would happily cede her selfhood in exchange for a man who could give her security. That did not appeal to teenage Raquel Tejada. In fact, Marilyn's vulnerability, her evident inability to take care of herself, reminded Raquel of everything that she found frustrating about her own mother. Marilyn, to quote Raquel, was an accident waiting to happen. Raquel met her first husband, James Welch, when they were both 15. They dated seriously for two years, and then he dropped out of school to go work on a boat. By the time he came back, Raquel had enrolled as a scholarship student at San Diego State. But absence had made the heart... whatever. And so she dropped out of college, and they went to Vegas to elope. In a whirlwind matter of months, Raquel found herself pregnant with one child, and then almost immediately after giving birth, another. Almost as quickly, her marriage started to fall apart. In Raquel Beyond the Cleavage, a 2010 book promoted as an autobiography, even though it's really more like a lifestyle guide, Welch is effusive about the love she felt for her first husband, and vague about exactly why, one day, she gathered up her two infant children and left him. She implies that he didn't want her to work. She also notes repeatedly that she had seen her mother suffocate under the thumb of her controlling father, and that Raquel herself was determined not to make her mother's life her own. She had landed a gig as a weather girl on a local TV station and had saved up to get a nose job. She wanted to go to New York to find the Paula Strasberg to her nouveau Marilyn Monroe. But then her locker at work got broken into and she lost all of her savings. And she decided to settle for Los Angeles. But it was rough. In 1963, no one wanted to even rent an apartment to a single mom. She had no car, two kids, and $200 in the bank. She was turned down at every modeling agency because her body type wasn't fashionable. And in fact, later, when her 37, 22, 33 measurements became the stuff of legend, there were rumors that she'd had a rib or two removed to exaggerate her hourglass proportions. She could only find work as a fitting model, where she stood all day in a back room as a human dress form as scraps of muslin were pinned all over her. She kept her married last name, but she refused to de-ethnicize Raquel. She went to auditions armed with the correct pronunciation of her first name printed on a slip of paper. She was earnest and, from the first, desperate to be taken seriously. She'd show up in a casting office in a conservative suit, and see that all of the other girls were in miniskirts with caked-on makeup. She sized up the situation quickly. With no experience, and no one around to pull any strings, Raquel had to showcase the assets she did have. She would say later, When I finally came up with my version of walking in the door and knocking people's socks off, it worked only too well. Sometime around 1965, Raquel met Patrick Curtis a publicist who had been floating around town for a while. Curtis would tell people that he was the nephew of Billy Wilder. 
Patrick Curtis definitely wasn't his real name. In fact, he had invented himself in the image of his idol, Tony Curtis. Every article written about Welch in the mid-60s credits Curtis as her Svengali. But interestingly, Welch herself virtually omits his hand in her big break from her book, noting only that he, quote, insinuated himself, with my tacit consent, into my career. The press from the 60s gives the impression that no one ever liked Patrick Curtis much, maybe not even Raquel, and that he was perceived as the kind of guy who turns a vulnerable girl into a cash cow and then sits back while she makes him rich. Raquel wasn't that vulnerable, but that kind of did happen. And you can see why Raquel would want to lie to the guy who was accused of pulling her strings. After all, if you've got a string puller, it makes it tougher to argue that you're more than a marionette. The way Raquel tells it, a photo of her ended up in Life magazine, and James Bond producer Cubby Broccoli saw it and had her tested for Thunderball. She didn't get that part, but she did get a contract with Fox, who swiftly cast her in two movies shooting overseas, Fantastic Voyage and One Million Years B.C. One Million Years B.C. was shot in the Canary Islands. Raquel played a cavewoman who spent the whole film running away from dinosaurs while wearing a fur two-piece which the publicity department referred to as woman's first bikini. It was just her second major role, and she wanted to try to make the most of it. But she was quickly disabused of the notion that what she wanted mattered. On her first day, she approached director Don Chaffee and said, Listen, Don, I've been studying the script, and I was thinking... He cut her off. You were thinking? Don't. Then he told her what he expected from her. You see that rock over there? That's rock A. When I call action, you start running all the way over the rock B, which is over there. When you get about midway between the two, pretend like you see a giant turtle coming over that hill. You scream, and then we break for lunch. Got it? She got it all right. Maybe it was the repressed frustration over being literally told not to think that made that poster image so powerful. The image couldn't have been taken under worse circumstances. They were shooting on top of a smoking volcano in the middle of winter. Raquel was the only one on set who wasn't allowed to wear a parka between shots so the photographers could get what they needed of her in costume. The shooting of stills was a nuisance, another thing keeping her from getting back to her kids who were with a nanny back at the hotel. She had no idea those stills would be distributed to magazines all throughout the world over the next few days and weeks. And by the time the shoot wrapped and she and Curtis landed at Heathrow... Raquel Welch was the paparazzi's new pet target. By the time the movie was actually released, Raquel Welch was already one of the most talked about women in the world. What was it about Raquel's look that became such a big deal? For one thing, it probably helped that her pictures went into European publications first. She was much more like a Sophia Loren than any current star in mid-60s America. In fact, she may have helped to fill the niche vacated by Marilyn Monroe a few years earlier, in part because she was so different, physically and psychologically. Bronzed and athletic, Raquel looked like she liked being outside. She looked like she didn't need a protector. She was slightly intimidating, not exactly accommodating, but unlike previous bitch bombshells like Jane Russell or Kim Novak, 
she didn't exactly look like she'd give you a hard time. She was confident, capable, in equal parts defiant and wild. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Curtis's shaping of Welch seemed to be more about subtraction than addition. They refused to answer questions about their own relationship for years, although a European tabloid published photos of Raquel at their wedding in February 1967, where she wore a white crocheted mini dress. And for a while, she tried to hide the fact that she had kids. Often, they'd be in London or Rome with a nanny while she was traveling the world, shooting or doing press. In the late 60s, kids weren't welcome on film sets, and no one was willing to make any special compensation for a star who was also a mom. And, at least at first, Welch was worried that being a mom was incompatible with being a sex goddess. Of course, the mere fact of being a sex goddess at this time, or probably any time, was kind of a weird thing. In the early to mid-60s, the old studio system was death-rattling, and it looked like European cities like London, Paris, and Rome were going to become the new filmmaking capitals. Raquel spent a lot of time in Europe, because Europe was where there was work. And later, she would actually lament that she hadn't had the benefit of the studio system. There was no one guiding her career, building vehicles around her, protecting her image. She was literally just strapped into a fur bikini and fed to the wolves. And on some level, she wasn't made for her times. She was a break away from Marilyn, but she also had an exaggerated body shape and beauty that didn't fit in in a time when Twiggy was the fashionable ideal. Raquel was a bystander to social and cultural scenes in swinging London and Rome, but she didn't do drugs, and she certainly didn't swing. She benefited from the idea of a new sexual permissiveness being in the air, but she wasn't personally at all into free love, and in fact was often criticized in the press and by people in Hollywood for being a prude because she refused to appear totally nude. She was apt to respond to such criticism by slamming the sexual revolution as being bad for both men and women. Then, by the end of the 1960s, the new Hollywood era was starting, which actually boxed Welch in further. Certainly, nobody thought of her for the parts that were going to girls like Mia Farrow or Julie Christie. Welch may have had a completely different look and persona than Marilyn Monroe, but she fought a similar struggle. Both were commodified for their bodies. Both were constantly trying to prove that there were other things about them of value, other things that they could do. In interviews, Raquel would acknowledge that it was flattering to be called a sex goddess, but she insisted that there were more disadvantages than advantages. The label sex goddess somehow eclipses everything about you, she said. A sex goddess isn't a real living thing. She's a plastic lady. She has no intellect, no emotions, no anything. She's a man-eater. I don't happen to be any of those things. She was chafing against the idea of being a male fantasy, 
but she also didn't have the support of the dominant female voices emerging in the culture, that of feminists, who wrote her off as merely the embodiment of male fantasy, and thus the enemy. In turn, Raquel had choice words for the movement, which in 1970 she seemed to think had already gone too far. There's no one who's liberated to the point the American woman is and yet handles it worse, she told Playboy in 1970. She's become so over-dominant that she's past the point of equality and is now sledgehammering the poor American male into the pavement. It's too bad that second-wave feminism and Raquel Welch couldn't find common ground. Because if you're willing to throw out the bad and embrace the good, she really did pave the way for an expansion of the types of images seen on screen in a number of positive ways. And it starts with that pinup poster. Yes, she was skimpily attired and way sexualized, but she was also muscular and capable looking. Throughout her career, her body would often be the place where conflicting impulses would converge. She was absolutely made the object of a pornographic gaze, but she was also rarely merely a damsel in distress. And in several films, she was almost an action star, at least keeping up with her male co-stars. But a convergence point can be an uncomfortable middle ground for a body to be in. Think about a film like 100 Rifles, in which Welch famously starred opposite football star Jim Brown. This was the first movie in which Welch was asked to get naked, and she refused. The original script called for Welch to be completely nude under an outdoor shower. The side of her body causes a moving train to stop, and then she runs through the desert, still completely nude, pumping a shotgun. Raquel agreed that this would be quite an image, but she didn't think she should do it as the lead actress in the film. Because how would the audience be able to take her seriously after such an entrance? She said it wasn't the nudity that bothered her. It was the stupidity. She argued that if she stood under the water wearing a shirt, essentially turning it into a wet t-shirt scene, it would be more than sexy enough without demeaning and diminishing the character. And she was right. It was shot that way, and it transforms her from a panicked floozy into a sexy warrior. But according to Welch, the power she showed over her own body made the men on set insecure, and even determined to assert their manliness, to the point that Jim Brown later implied that he gave Welch an orgasm while the cameras were rolling, merely by sticking his tongue in her ear. Welch remembered it differently. He licked the whole side of my face, she said. And in the moment, all I could think was, holy Christ, what the fuck does he think he's doing? She also said that the Spanish set of the movie was rife with intra-cast and crew affairs. Quote, as if they just discovered fucking when they got to Spain. Raquel wasn't part of the debauch, which may have made her an even easier target to be taken down a peg. It wasn't just her male co-stars and directors with whom she could have combative relationships. She also wasn't above throwing shade at other actresses. Speaking to Playboy a couple of years after Kim Novak had posed for the magazine, Welch made it clear that she didn't approve. Kim Novak is way past the age to be doing that sort of thing, she said. She's large, and she looks awful. 
Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. It was one thing to argue with directors about a script. It was another to refuse to be submissive about the use of one's body in front of a camera. And it was another to give judgy quotes about how her coworkers and colleagues used their bodies when the cameras were off. At the very least, it may have been fair to call Raquel a buzzkill, which might have been the ultimate insult in Hollywood at that time. And soon, Raquel Welch acquired a reputation for being difficult, which is always pretty much the worst thing an actress could be at any time. In her defense, she felt like she was being asked to do nothing but softcore porn, and she thought the only way to change her options was to put her foot down. In 1967, she refused to star in The Valley of the Dolls, turning down a part that went to Sharon Tate, And it was a choice she later said she regretted. But instead, she went to Italy to meet with Michelangelo Antonioni, who was casting Blow Up. And he cast Vanessa Redgrave instead. She tried to work with Francois Truffaut and Claude Lelouch. But nobody making good movies thought that she could do anything more than flaunt her cleavage. And since that was the primary kind of work she could get, she had no real opportunity to prove them wrong. And the movies she did make didn't do much to change her image, even when that was the stated intention of her taking the part. Certainly in the moment, the worst decision of all seemed to be Myra Breckenridge, the film based on Gore Vidal's novel, in which Rex Reed gets a sex change and becomes Raquel Welch. Johnny Weisfeller, the Zoftic Tarzan, still provides the last word on soft man's relationship to hard environment. In Tarzan and the Amazons, 1945. Tarzan and the Amazons? You mean you like that? As I've just indicated, it was a masterpiece. But it's trash. I mean, there isn't a single moment of truth. I mean, it's not, uh, real. Whatever real means, is that necessarily good? Could the real Christ have possessed a fraction of the radiance of H.B. Warner in The First King of Kings? Or Jeffrey Hunter in The Second... What in hell is that woman talking about? Myra Breckenridge became not just a camp classic, but a kind of camp manifesto. But in 1970, it was considered a major flop for all involved, and Gore Vidal himself disowned it. Amazingly, Raquel thought of it as her first serious film. Myra Breckenridge didn't kill Raquel's career. In fact, her next few years were quite eventful. She produced and starred in a pretty good roller derby movie called Kansas City Bombers, which reflected her own experience as a working single mom in a long-distance relationship with her kids. 
Then, the arguable peak of Welch's career came with Richard Lester's The Three Musketeers in 1974. The movie was a smash hit, and Raquel is really good in it. But even when making good movies, she left behind her a trail of unflattering headlines. When she was seen bursting into tears at Heathrow Airport after storming off the set of 1973's The Last of Sheila, columnist Marilyn Beck reported that Welch was planning to file suit against director Herbert Ross for assault. Raquel's publicist, Pat Kingsley, said her client had been given permission to leave the shoot early to go promote Kansas City Bombers, but that when she told Ross she was leaving, he tried to hit her. Whatever happened, the incident made Raquel an enemy of co-star James Mason and co-writer Anthony Perkins, who both bitched about her in the press. And Warner Brothers even issued a statement contending that the studio was, quote, pleased with the picture, but displeased with Miss Welch's unprofessional behavior. Beck also cited another incident on another film in which Welch refused to shoot a scene in bra and panties, causing an anonymous crew member to gripe. Let's face it, we weren't paying her $100,000 on the basis of her acting ability. Sick burn, right? It was the same old thing, over and over again. She didn't want to take off her clothes, and that made her a bitch. She'd been fighting the same fight for years, and nothing had changed. She had made the industry plenty of money, but Hollywood hated her. Think about what that could do to a person. At worst, it could make you totally insane. At best... It could make you more of a bitch. Through the mid to late 70s, she did a Vegas act and some TV stuff, but she didn't shoot a movie at all between 1977 and 1980. So when she was approached to star in an adaptation of John Steinbeck's Cannery Row, produced by Michael Phillips, the ex-husband of Julia You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again Phillips, with whom Michael had won an Oscar for The Sting, Raquel jumped at the chance. She agreed to screen test, She even agreed to finally do her first nude scene. Phillips and the director of the film, David Ward, met with Raquel and asked her frankly about her reputation for being difficult. She calmed their nerves, and she got the part. Raquel made it through two weeks of rehearsal and costume fittings without a problem. Shooting began, and they didn't need her for the first couple of days. By the time they did need her, the production was already over schedule and over budget. After a few days, she asked if she could start having her makeup done at home before she came to set because the trailer they had offered her for those purposes was just too small. The production manager agreed, but production moved slowly. Nearly three weeks into a shoot which had contracted Welch for only nine weeks, Welch had shot only about one-sixth of her part. When MGM studio head David Begelman called Michael Phillips in to try to solve the problem of the spiraling out-of-control budget, Phillips blamed Welch's insistence on having her makeup done at home for the cost overruns and delays. Bagelman told Phillips that he had to confront his actress and tell her that if she didn't report to the studio to have her makeup done, she would be charged with breach of contract. Phillips called Raquel. Begelman is crazy, Phillips said. He put a gun to my head, Phillips said. He's sending a breach of contract letter because of your makeup thing. I couldn't stop him, Phillips said. Raquel was upset. She told Phillips that if somebody told Begelman that it was her makeup thing that was causing the delays, then somebody was lying. She burst into tears and handed the phone to her then-husband. Somehow, Welch didn't get the message that she was expected to report to the studio for makeup the next day, a Friday. 
When she didn't, the letter was served, and on Monday, she was fired and replaced by 25-year-old Deborah Winger. Director David Ward told a Rolling Stone reporter a few months later that Welch had been replaced because she wasn't giving a good performance. And so Welch sued MGM, Phillips, and Ward for breach of contract, conspiracy, and defamation. Welch was able to prove in court that there had been secret talks between the producers and Winger before Welch had been fired about Winger taking over the role. She was also able to prove that they conspired to blame her for the film's budget and schedule overruns, which was damaging to her reputation. The case dragged on until 1986, during which time Welch didn't make a single film. Her friends told her that she was acting crazy, that she'd never work again if she didn't leave this alone. At this point, she might have been like the girl who had cried wolf. She had been perceived as a bitch, rightly or wrongly, for so long that now that she actually had a case, no one was willing to back her. Well, not no one. In her book, Raquel notes that Cary Grant, Burt Reynolds, and Burt Lancaster publicly lent her their support, but she couldn't get a movie agent throughout the six years that the case dragged on, and she didn't get any movie work. In 1986, a jury finally awarded Raquel Welch $25 million in total damages, although that judgment was cut to $11 million on appeal. The jury agreed that she had been the victim of breach of contract, conspiracy, and defamation. Now, I've read the summary judgment of the case, and nowhere in it is it ever mentioned that 40-year-old actress Raquel Welch was replaced by 25-year-old actress Deborah Winger because the 40-year-old was too old. It doesn't seem like Welch accused the producers of age discrimination at the time. None of the press coverage of the case that I can find brought up age as an issue. But in her book, published in 2010, Welch insists that, quote, age was the reason cited for my dismissal, and when the case was tried in court, I found myself characterized as an over-the-hill actress playing a part I was too old for. End quote. Maybe this was the unspoken truth running through the whole thing. Knowing Hollywood, that's definitely plausible. And or, maybe, as a woman in Hollywood whose body had been commodified for decades and who had tried mostly unsuccessfully to prove herself to be more than just a hot bod... Raquel Welch was justifiably paranoid. And, of course, just because you're paranoid, that doesn't mean that they're not after you. After she was fired from Cannery Row, it seems like Raquel Welch kind of broke up with the male gaze, and she started devoting herself to appealing to the female gaze. First, she replaced Lauren Bacall in Woman of the Year, the Broadway adaptation of Hollywood's greatest work about what the industry does to aging actresses, All About Eve. She started doing exercise videos and launched lines of wigs. In Beyond the Cleavage, she gives frank advice about everything from diet and exercise to hormone replacement therapy and AARP dating. The book became a huge bestseller, occasioning Raquel Welch film retrospectives. And the timing of that is good, because when you look at her whole filmography, from One Billion Years B.C. to Bedazzled, from 100 Rifles to Myra Breckenridge, it all kind of fits into what you might call the New Beverly aesthetic. 
It's all stuff that is ripe for rediscovery, either because it's really good and has been for whatever reason forgotten, or because it's not that good, but is perfect for camp appreciation. This reevaluation of her body of work included a popular reappraisal of Welch as a kind of proto-action heroine, somebody who made it possible for the women who came after her, Sigourney Weaver, Angelina Jolie, etc., etc., thus allowing her to be categorized as part of the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s after the fact, with little to no acknowledgement that they didn't want her at the time. And it seems like she anticipated this change in her public persona almost two decades before it fully became a thing. In an interview in 1993, when she was just 52, she talked about how women would follow her into bathrooms to ask her, how do you do it? Presumably, as in, how do you manage to stay so hot after all these years? Sure, women admire me, Raquel said. Now that I'm old... Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.